So Father, we come now to your word because it is our sure and true foundation. It is the rock that you call us to build our lives upon, the rock that reveals your son to us, Jesus Christ. Or we build our lives upon your word because we want to build our lives on him. And so today, Father, will you bring us under the authority of your word? But Lord, help us today not just to see that it's right and that it's true. God, help us to see that it's beautiful and it's good. So Father, will you today, by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak to us through your word? Will you edify your church and glorify your name? Father, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Father, speak it to us now. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen, amen. Hey, you can go ahead and have a seat. And uh, as you find your seats this morning, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm gonna invite you to turn with me in your Bibles. Colossians chapter three is where we're gonna spend our time together this morning, picking up in verse 18. And today we're gonna go to chapter four, verse one. If you're our guest today, my name's Taylor. I serve here at Cross as lead pastor, and we're honored to have you worshiping with us. And this summer, our church has been walking verse by verse through Paul's short letter to the Colossians. And Lord willing, we're going to land this plane and wrap things up together next week. Um, hey, this is fifth Sunday, which means family worship Sunday. So can we welcome all of our elementary kids into the room uh, this morning? Glad to have all of you guys here. Um, which, listen, church family, means it's, it's going to be a little bit busy. Um, parents, understand, God put the wiggle in your child, and it's okay. He did not err in doing that. Um, I had a sweet senior saint in the church I grew up in who always said, if babies aren't crying, the church is dying. I'm reminded every single week that Cross Community Church is alive and well. And so, um, so maybe a little extra wiggle this morning, and, and that's okay. Um, but as we open up Colossians chapter 3 this morning, it's good to be back with you after a couple weeks off. Um, and coming back off two weeks of vacation, um, I realized this past Monday, I have the privilege of, of now preaching uh, one of the most controversial texts in the entire Bible. So thank you to Dave and Dustin for leaving that to me. Um, might need a couple more weeks of vacation after this morning. Uh, but Colossians 3, 18 uh, through chapter four, verse one. And as part of our worship every single week, one of our elders, like Dave did earlier, gets up and reads at least a portion of the sermon text for the day. And then they conclude the reading with the statement, this is the word of the Lord, to which we as a congregation respond, praise be to God. And we add this on because it's our reminder that these are not the words of man, these are the words of God. God has spoken his word to his people and the fitting appropriate response of his people is to give him praise. It's to give him thanks for the fact that God has spoken his word. But I think if you and I are being completely honest, some weeks it's a little bit easier for us to say this than others. You know, for example, if we're preaching Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's easy to tack on, this is the word of the Lord, and then respond, yes, thanks be to God, praise be to God. A few weeks ago, I got to preach Psalm 103, that the Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and he's abounding in love. And it's easy to close that, that verse by saying, this is the word of the Lord. And it's easy to respond, praise be to God. But then we come to texts like Colossians chapter three, and we find statements like this. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. 
children obey your parents, slaves obey your masters. And it's a lot harder in those moments to acknowledge that this too is the word of the Lord. And it can be even harder to respond, praise be to God. Now, I just wanna say something right out of the gate at the beginning of this message this morning. I'm not nervous about this which is exactly what someone would say if they were nervous about something, right? Now, legitimately, like, I'm, I'm not nervous about this. And here's the reason why I'm not nervous about this passage this morning. Uh, if you're new to our church, one of the first things that I hope that you learn about us is that we have, like, a ridiculous amount of confidence in the Word of God. Um, that, that is the foundation that has been building this church for seven years. That's gonna continue being the foundation that carries us into the future. And, and church, especially in our postmodern context with our modern sensitivities and sensibilities, friends, sometimes I think it's important for us to be reminded that this is the word of the Lord and the Lord is not ashamed or embarrassed of one word that's in this book which means that you and I should not be ashamed or embarrassed of what it says either. And the second reason I'm nervous is because I truly believe that these words, when rightly understood and rightly applied, will best lead to human flourishing in every relationship, both in our home and in our work. You know, as uncomfortable as words like authority and submission make us feel, these words, when rightly understood, are gonna help us display God's perfect design and actually preach the gospel message in all of our relationships with one another. So what we're gonna see this morning from Colossians chapter three is our submission to the authority of the Lord shapes submission and authority in our relationships and work. Every human relationship that we have is in some capacity a reflection of the divine relationship that we have with the Lord. So husbands and wives, children and parents, believers who are under authority and believers who are in positions of authority, God has a good and perfect design for how the gospel is uniquely displayed in every human relationship. But here's, I think, gonna be our biggest challenge today. Church, I think our biggest challenge today might not be that we can submit ourselves to the fact that these words are true and right. I think a lot of us will be able to bring ourselves to that place. But my desire today is not just to prove to you that these words are true and right. What I want for you more than anything else today is for you to see that these words are beautiful and good. And we should not be ashamed or embarrassed of what God's word says. We should be able to hear these things, boldly declare this is the word of the Lord, and then worshipfully respond, praise be to God. So from Colossians chapter three, I'm gonna read verses 18 through 21. Paul's instructions, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for Christian households. He writes, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So we see first from this passage this morning that the lordship of Jesus Christ shapes the makeup of our homes. A common refrain that you're gonna see repeated through these nine verses is the name of the Lord. In some capacity, we see the name of the Lord repeated at least six times here at the end of chapter three and the beginning of chapter four. And in the first context, uh, it's the instructions that are given for wives in a Christian marriage. Paul writes, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Now, uh, D.A. Carson, great theologian, I once heard him say in a talk that he was giving, um, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. 
Uh, Meaning that you and I, if we're not careful, what we'll do is we'll lift verses of scripture out of the Bible, completely divorced from the context in which they were originally given, and then we can use those things then to do terrible things. And unfortunately, this is one of those passages of scripture where, where, man, it feels like as soon as we hear that instruction, we kind of just block out everything else. And, and so uh, we don't have time to read it this morning, but I put a note in the margin of your worship guide. Man, just go back and read verses one through 17. Because what Paul shows in verse one through 17, what Dave walked us through last week, is that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to put off the old self. We're called to put off the old self of sin, and we're called to put on the new self, the new life that is given in Jesus Christ, which means above all else, putting on love. And so if you don't read verse 18 in light of the context of verses one through 17, it's gonna lead us to some really messy places. And so above all else as believers, we have put off the old self, we have put on Jesus Christ, which means we've also put on love. Now, every passage of scripture, this is helpful uh, for when you're studying your Bible on your own. Every passage of scripture has what Brian Chapel calls a fallen condition focus. Meaning every command that scripture calls us to obey and every sin that scripture calls us to avoid is given to us because our fallen condition, our fallen nature is to do the opposite of what it says. Meaning that because of our fallen nature and condition, every single time the Bible says don't, our flesh is like, no, you go do it. And then every time the Bible says go do this, our flesh says, no, don't do those things. And so in order to find the fallen condition that's impacted marriage, it's easy to find. All you and I have to do is go back to the fall. So many controversies today about the makeup of the homes, what is marriage, what does leadership in the home, what does leadership in the church, what do these things look like? So many controversies could be solved if we just went back to the picture of what things looked like before sin entered into the world. And this was the picture of the home before sin entered the world, before sin tainted everything. Genesis 1 tells us that God creates man to be in relationship with him in his own image. That's Genesis chapter 1, to be in fellowship with God. And in Genesis chapter 2, we see that before woman is formed, God gives his word to man. So we see right away that God is ordaining man to be the spiritual leader of his home. And then uh, God says it's not good for man to be alone. So he causes a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And while he's asleep, he takes one of his ribs and he forms woman. And then right there in the garden, God performs the very first wedding ceremony. And it doesn't take long from there for things to get blown up. That they're deceived by the serpent. Eve uh, takes of the tree first. Adam takes of it, taking, kind of following her lead in this way. And we know that God has ordained man to be the spiritual leader of his home because once they've both eaten of the tree, who does the Lord come looking for? Looks for Adam. It's Adam that he ultimately holds accountable that the standard of his word was not upheld in his home. So, so from the beginning of creation, we can see that God has ordained marriage to be this relationship where the husband serves as a loving, caring, sacrificing, protecting, providing leader for his home. And his design was for women to follow, to submit to his loving, caring, protecting, providing leadership. But all of it got destroyed by sin. And then this is the curse that the Lord pronounced. And this is how marriage is impacted that we see from Genesis 3.15. As the Lord pronounces the curse, here's what he says. He says, to Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Okay, so here's how we get the fallen condition focus of Colossians 
chapter three. It just points us back to the fall. Because of sin, this is how marriage has been distorted. Because of sin, husbands will attempt to rule over women by asserting their dominance. And because of sin, wives will be tempted to rebel against their husband's loving leadership. So instead of complementing one another, as God has designed us to, we end up competing with one another in our families. Now, I want to pause with an illustration for a second because I know you guys are stressed out. And you know, anytime we start using words like authority and submission, listen, to no fault of our own, probably because of some ways that we've seen these things misused, we, we get these feelings of discomfort. But I'm convinced part of the reason why we struggle with this in our culture today is because we hear those words, which can be good words, but we automatically start thinking about something else. Um, now, our, our youngest son, Lincoln, he's a big Bluey fan. Parents, any, any Bluey fans in the room with younger kids, okay? Uh, if you're, you're past that age, Bluey is a cartoon family of four Australian Australian dogs. And, um, and I want you to hang on to that for a second, because a, a couple years ago, not long after Lincoln had started watching Bluey, we would hear him talking every once in a while, and it would sound like he was talking in a baby voice. And you know, Lincoln had always been a really good talker, had a good vocabulary, and he was in preschool and getting ready to start kindergarten. We're like, hey, buddy, like, please don't talk in your baby voice. You're a big boy. You need to use your big boy voice. And he'd say, okay, okay, okay. And, and man, but this just kept going on and it kept going on. And he's about to start school. We're like, man, this is a problem. We're like, buddy, like, you can't go to school. We don't want to hear from your teacher that you're talking in your baby voice. Please use your big boy voice. And you could just tell it was like, man, this is, we're just getting nowhere with this. We're like, gosh, are we going to have to have consequences? Is there going to have to be discipline? Well, then not long before he's about to start school, uh, Lincoln one day was watching the episode of Blue where they go to Hammer Barn, except they don't say it Hammer Barn like a redneck from Boone like me does. Uh, they're from Australia, so they go to Hemabon, right? And so I hear Lincoln upstairs recreating the scene. He goes, we're going to Hemabon. And I realized in that moment, Lincoln's not been talking like a baby. He's been talking like Bluey. And the poor kid is probably confused as heck. Why do mom and dad keep asking me to quit talking like a baby? He wasn't talking like a baby. He's a five-year-old talking with an Australian accent, and it sounded like a baby. And, and so it created conflict. It created confusion. And, and so again, this is what happens when we hear verses like this. We read authority, but some of us hear authoritarian. We hear words like submission, and we think subjugation. But that is not at all what God intends in these words. So let's make sure as we get now into these instructions for husbands and wives and parents and children, let's make sure we really hear what the word of the Lord says. So the first instruction is to women. Paul writes, wives, submit to your husbands. Now, as uncomfortable as this word makes us feel sometimes, in Roman culture, most women would not have actually expected to hear the word submit. They would have expected to hear the word obey. Because in a male-dominated Roman culture, men were the absolute authoritarian rulers of their homes. They were not to be questioned. They asserted the dominance over the family. But when Paul uses this term submit, it's given in the middle voice, meaning that women would have heard it as an encouragement to make a willful decision. It would have come across more to them as submit yourself. So it would have been a conscious, willful decision, something that she desired to do and wasn't having to be coerced to do. So this would not have been heard as a begrudging submission. It would have been heard as a willful decision to gladly, joyfully, voluntarily follow her husband's lead. So, so think of it like this. Let's say you were given the opportunity to go on a free 
all-inclusive, all-expenses-paid cruise. Okay, you, you don't have to pay a dime. You, you, just, you just got to show up. There's a sense in which when you arrive, you're going to submit yourself to the leadership of the staff. You're gonna put yourself gladly in the position, right, where they're bringing the food to you and they're taking care of the stuff at your room and they're showing you where, where you need to go. There's a sense in which you, you gladly submit to this. You're glad to follow that leadership because their commitment is service to you. So ladies, please don't miss this today. Nothing in scripture requires you to suffer in silence under the authoritarian, domineering, abusive leadership of a man. Absolutely nothing. And we know this because of what we see in the very next verse, the instruction that Paul gives immediately following this, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. He then says, husbands, love your wives. And then what's he say? And do not be harsh with them. Wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives. So men, let's make sure that we're clear on this. Nothing in this passage gives you the permission to lead your home in a domineering, authoritarian manner. This attitude of, I'm the man, you're the woman, God said it, you do as I say, that is not leadership ordained by God. That is leadership that has been distorted by sin, and you, brother, are in sin and need to repent. But that is not your permission to lead your home however you want. Your authority does not mean you can be an authoritarian. Her submission does not mean that she is in subjugation. Your wife is not a child. And Paul captures all of this in this statement. But brothers, go back and read verses one through 17. Anger and wrath, these are all part of the old self. And we have been called to put off the old self and put on Christ, which means above all else, putting on love. Brothers, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Paul expands on this more in Ephesians chapter five. He says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And what did Christ do for his church? He gave himself up for her. So as Jesus is the perfect groom who loves his bride and gives his life for her, husbands are called to love our wives by giving ourselves up for them. You know, out of, out of every metaphor that the Lord could have used in the Bible to describe the relationship of Jesus to the church, he chose the metaphor of marriage. So brothers and sisters, let's not miss this this morning. Marriage is as important as preaching the gospel because marriage is a preaching of the gospel. The question is not, does your marriage preach the gospel? The question is, what type of gospel is your marriage preaching? Because marriage is the gospel in motion. And I think the best book on marriage I've probably ever read that I would recommend to you is The Meaning of Marriage by Tim and Kathy Keller, written from a husband and wife couple perspective. And so I just wanna read a couple of quotes from each of them that helps us get more clarity on this today. Tim writes in the book, a husband's job is to serve his wife and give his life for her. And then Kathy responds to this saying, a woman can have no need to fear being submissive to a man whose idea of authority is to be a servant to die for her. She expands on this more in an interview that she gave with the Gospel Coalition where she said, all of God's designs are beautiful, sometimes intricate, difficult to master and affected by sin, but glorious nonetheless. In marriages that embrace God's design, you both get to play the Jesus role. Husbands are told to imitate Jesus as the servant leader who will go to any length, even death, to serve and purify his bride. And wives can look to Jesus as he was worshiped in Philippians 2. Submissive to the role of Ezer, the Hebrew word for helper, in full knowledge of her equality. 
So husbands model Jesus by sacrificing for and serving their wives, which reflects how Christ gave himself up for his church. And then wives model Jesus by supporting and submitting to the loving leadership of their husband in the same way that Jesus followed the leadership of his father, even though he was equal with him. And so this is how we display Jesus in marriage. This is how we display the gospel in unique complementary ways, which is why Paul says, husbands love your wives and wives submit to the love of your husband. Uh, Third instruction that Paul gives, children, obey your parents. All right, a lot of kids in the room today. Kids, I did not pick this verse just because I knew you were gonna be in here. I promise you. This past week, we're sitting at the dinner table. I told my boys, I said, guess what dad's preaching on Sunday? They were like, what? I said, children, obey your parents. One of them who shall remain nameless goes, no. This is every parent's favorite verse and every kid's least favorite verse. So so kids and students in the room, those of you who are living under your parents' home, I I hope you hear my heart in this this morning. Some of you, man, I used to be your youth pastor. You know that I'm one of you, right? Like I got your back. I love you guys. But as long as you live under the authority of your parents, you too have been given the privilege of displaying Jesus in your own unique way. Kids, listen, the next instruction is is for parents, that they're not supposed to be harsh with you. They're not supposed to be condescending to you. That they're not supposed to lead you in ways that hurt you or cause you harm. But as long as your parents are not asking you to do something illegal, something unethical, something immoral, something that would go against the word of God, you have a responsibility to follow what they do. But but kids and students, please, please hear my heart on this today. I promise you, your mom and your dad, and this is also true of your heavenly father, they're not just after your obedience, they're after your heart. Now, I grew up in the mountains of Western North Carolina, and I remember a lot of uh, nights of heavy snow, and I'd have to get out and shovel our driveway, you know, early in the morning, and six o'clock in the morning, dumping snow, my dad would come knock on my door. He's like, hey, man, you got to get out there and, and get going here. And I'm like, it's warm inside. I don't want to go out there. I remember some days in particular, I'm like, it's still snowing outside. It's pointless. Why am I going to go shovel right? He's like, I get it, but it's going to be a lot easier for us to move around in four inches of snow than 12 inches of snow. You need to get out there and shovel. And so we'd usually have to go back and forth. Uh, we, this would go on for a little bit. He got to come in my room. Hey man, get out of bed, get ready. And I remember, you know, about 13, 14 years old, one of them standing at the front door, throwing my boots on, throwing my jacket on, making as much noise as I possibly can, right? What am I doing in the snow outside? I'm like slinging it across the yard. I'm like, in your face. I'm doing it, but I'm mad about it. Is my dad pleased in that moment? I mean, kind of. The driveway's getting shoveled, right? It's getting done. But no, he doesn't just want my begrudging submission. He, he, he desires for me to, to do what it is he's asked me to do because he loves me and he's proven his love for me. And the way I love him is by honoring him in return. And so so kids and students, this is how you display the gospel. In the same way that Jesus perfectly obeyed everything his heavenly father called him to do, including dying for your sins. When you obey your parents, when you respect them and you honor them by doing what it is they've asked you to do, you demonstrate the gospel in your own unique way. And kids and students, listen, nobody else in your house can play that role. You get to display Jesus the love of Jesus, the submission of Jesus, the service of Jesus by honoring your parents. But again, parents, we're not off the hook here because then the follow-up instruction for parents is parents, encourage your children. Now, now this, this is directed in the text to, to fathers, but it absolutely applies to all parents. The reason it says fathers is because in a Greco-Roman household, again, the father had total authority. 
And because of the following condition, the temptation that fathers are gonna face is to lead our homes through dominance. But fathers, this is the unique role that's been entrusted to us. There's nobody else on this earth that our children can look at and say, father. Nobody else can fulfill that role. And, and, and husbands, fathers, like, I, I know this is a lot of pressure. Because brothers, I feel this with you. But man, our kids in many ways, they're going to form their perception of who their heavenly father is based on how their earthly father acts. And I could point you to dozens of people across the board today that they want nothing to do with the heavenly father because of the challenges they have with their earthly father. You know, earlier I mentioned Psalm 103. What's it tell us about our father? He's merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in love, which is why Paul says, fathers, do not provoke your children. Listen, and again, just understand, moms, this applies to you. Moms, you're not off the hook here, right? Just because it says fathers, I know some of you are like, I'm about to do some provoking as soon as we walk out of here today. Like, that's, that's not, this is applying to, to mothers and fathers directly. Parents, hear, hear this this morning. There are a few things that are more crushing for our children and our teens than the feeling that they will never live up to our impossible expectations. There are a few things more crushing as, as a kid. You know, I had a great dad growing up. He passed away almost 12 years ago. Like me, like every earthly father, my, my dad was far from perfect. But the one thing I never had to question in my life, whether or not my dad loved me and was proud of me. And listen, there are grown men walking around today desperate for someone to look them in the eyes and say, I love you and I'm proud of you. And parents, if our messaging to our kids continually, implicitly or explicitly is, yeah, they're good, but they're not good enough. They're obedient, but they're not obedient enough. They're well-behaved, but they're not well-behaved enough. Listen, I, I don't know about you, but I'm really glad that's not how the Lord treats us. That's not how the heavenly father treats his children. So, so parents, when our kids fall short of our expectations, and they will, remember that you too fell short of your heavenly father's expectations. And when you did, he did not scold you with guilt. He saved you by his grace. And we display the gospel of Jesus Christ. We display the love of the Father in our homes when we don't provoke our children to anger, when we don't discourage them and we encourage them and raise them in the Lord. So husbands love your wives and wives submit to the love of your husbands and children obey your parents and parents encourage your children. Why do we do these things? What's the refrain repeated over and over and over again? In the Lord. When we fulfill these roles in our home, the gospel is displayed. And when we don't fulfill these roles in our home, the gospel is distorted. Let's round out the rest of this passage. Uh, Colossians 3, 22 down through 4, 1. Paul writes, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Now, um, this service this morning, we had a little bit more going on. Um, we had the parent-child dedication time. I'm not going to be able to expand on this uh, the way that I did in the first service, but that's actually the service we're going to post online. And so I'm going to do a little bit more of a, of a drive-by of this than I did with the earlier group, just for the sake of time. But just very quickly this morning, um, Paul is writing these words in a context of, of slavery. 
And so as we shift to what we would see as a normal household to the relationship of master and bondservant, what we see second in this text this morning is that the lordship of Jesus Christ shapes the posture of our hearts. And this is so important for us to see the heart change that happens through the work of the gospel. And the example we have in this text was from the Roman culture of master and bond servant. And many historians have estimated that there was many as 50 to 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, which was roughly half of the total population. But when we hear that word slave, what we have to recognize is that what Paul's addressing here is not exactly the same as what we think about when we think about the American slavery system. And, and, and that's important for us to see because uh, in some ways in, in the Roman Empire, the slavery system, it wasn't just a delineation between who was enslaved and who was free. In many ways, it was a delineation between those who worked and those who didn't. Um, the Roman free man, uh, he basically saw work as being beneath him. So, so slave did all types of work. It wasn't just forced labor or, or hard labor. Sometimes it was being a doctor. Sometimes it was being a, a teacher. And, and there is this misconception sometimes that, that the Bible is actually justifying slavery, that uh, we look through the centuries and say, well, you know, people used to use the Bible to justify systems of slavery, but that should have been happening. And here's how we know this. Um, the Bible explicitly condemns kidnapping a person and selling them into slavery for the purpose of forced labor. This goes back to the Old Testament Mosaic law, Exodus 21, 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. And we know that Paul didn't support this either because in his first letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 8, 1, 8 through 10, he lists enslavers among murderers and adulterers among a list of godless sinners who stood guilty and condemned before the Lord. You know, today it's, it's really sad. You could actually go to like the Museum of the Bible and you can see the slave Bible where whole passages of scripture were cut out. Any passage of scripture that would have encouraged a slave to attempt to pursue their own freedom. And then passages like this in Colossians 3 were left in to manipulate them into believing that their life of bondage and service was actually the will of God. And so, so we just got to be able to recognize that, man. We're bringing a lot of baggage to this particular text. But what Paul's addressing here, it's, it's not exactly the same as a forced slavery system. The ESV has accurately translated doulos here in the context of the term bond servant. Bond servanthood was part of the Roman economic system. So if someone was poor or had too much debt, they could sell their labor to a wealthy master who would promise to pay off their debt or provide them a home in return. And in the Roman culture, uh, those who were bond servants in Caesar's household basically served a 14-year contract. Uh, bond servants through the rest of the empire served a seven-year contract. And once that obligation was fulfilled, bond servants were released. And that's what Paul's addressing here. But at the same time, this was still at the end of the day, a system of one person owning another person. And what Paul introduces here are all of the foundational principles that would eventually lead to the dismantling of these types of systems. What we saw last week in Colossians 3, 11, Paul makes it clear that when we are in Christ, there are no longer these categories of slave and free. We are all seen as having equal value, equal worth, equal dignity in the eyes of God. So the gospel message is what started blowing this up within the Roman Empire and many other empires to follow, was the understanding that we were all made in God's image. 
And so what does this mean then for today? Like if, if we, we, okay, we understand slavery was evil. The Bible condemns slavery. We understand that even though bond servanthood wasn't as bad of a form of slavery, it was still slavery. Well, how do these things apply to us today? Well, I want you to think about this for a moment. If the principles that Paul introduced here applied to believers in a context of slavery, how much more do these principles apply to those of us who are free? If bond servants were commanded, obey your masters, and not by way of eye service, just, just working when they're watching, just to be pleasing to them. No, no, do it because you're working in light of the Lord. If masters were instructed, you lead them and you serve them fairly and justly. If these things applied to people in a context of slavery, how much more do they apply to us today? Because maybe while in our culture today, we don't have a system of, of master and enslave, we do have categories today of employer and employee. We have people who are in positions of authority, and we have people who are under those positions of authority. So very quickly from these verses, two principles that still absolutely apply to all believers everywhere today. Verse 22, Paul shows us that we submit to authority obediently and sincerely, so, so that's for those who are under authority. And then the second set of principles is for those who are in positions of authority. They should exercise authority fairly and justly. So let's speak to those who are employees, who are under positions of authority. Followers of Jesus Christ should be the best employees in the entire workforce. We, we should, as part of our witness, strive to be the very best employees in our workplaces, regardless of our role. And listen, not as people pleasers by way of eye service, meaning don't be the person who is working really hard when your boss is watching. Don't be the person who's really good at looking busy, appearing to be doing lots of work, who's then scrolling Instagram reels for two hours when your boss isn't paying attention. Don't be that person. Don't just be a people pleaser. Don't just perform when the spotlight's on you. You wanna know what type of employee you really are? How do you work when absolutely nobody else is watching? Because what we remember in those moments is someone is watching. Ultimately, we don't report to an earthly master. We report to a heavenly master who sees everything that we're doing and sees exactly how we're doing things. So we submit to authority obediently and sincerely. And just like the relationship with children and parents, unless our employers are asking us to do something illegal or immoral or unethical or that would cause us to go against God's word, we need to obey. We need to submit to the leadership of what they've asked us to do. It doesn't mean that you can't appeal to your rights as an employee legally, and uh, you can't appeal to your, to your job description. You can't sit down and have conversations if you feel like you're doing work that you're not being compensated for. It doesn't mean those things. But what it does mean is that when there are those from positions of authority above us, we best glorify Jesus Christ, and we best display the gospel message by humbly submitting and obeying the authority that's above us. So we submit to authority obediently, sincerely. And then second is for employers, for those in positions of authority. We exercise authority fairly and justly. Masters were commanded to treat bondservants fairly and justly, knowing that they too had a master who was in heaven. So again, like Christian employees, Christian employers, listen, if you're an employer in the room, I just ask you to like slip your hand up. You're a business leader in the community. You employ other people under you. Listen, we should be the best people to work for on planet earth. We should strive to do this. So employers and business owners, do you treat your employees fairly? 
Do you pay them fairly? Tell your boss I said this. Christian employers should strive to pay their employees better than anybody else. We should do that to the best of our ability. Bring, bring your employer to church next week. I'll, I'll say it again. We should strive to pay people to the very best of our ability. We wanna treat them fairly. We wanna treat them justly. Employers, don't bug your staff on their day off. Don't be unfair. Don't be unjust. As best as possible, give them flexibility to serve the needs of their family. Listen, it's okay for you to have high standards of excellence, that you communicate those who report to you, that you uphold those standards of excellence. And matter of fact, I think as a Christian employer, you should strive for excellence in the workplace. I don't think God is glorified in lazy workplaces, amen? I don't think God is, la- is glorified in, in disorganization and, and chaos. We should strive for excellence, uphold those standards. It's not wrong to have standards of excellence, but it is wrong to have standards that are impossible. And it's definitely wrong to hold people accountable to standards that you've never actually set or to have a constantly moving target of standards. You're an earthly servant of a heavenly master. He doesn't demand the impossible from you. In fact, he accomplished the impossible for you when you couldn't do it yourself by paying the debt of your sin at the cross. Our treatment that we received from Jesus was more than fair and just. So we treat those who work for us fairly and justly. You know, all of this this morning is really summarized in the passage that Dave read for us earlier from Colossians 3. Read verses 23 and 24. Paul writes, whatever you do, everybody say whatever, whatever you do. Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So the Lordship of Jesus Christ shapes the makeup of our homes. It shapes the posture of our hearts. Third, we see this morning that the Lordship of Jesus Christ shapes the work of our hands. When uh, Emily and I first got married, I was uh, still finishing seminary, and I'd worked a couple part-time roles at different churches, but was really seeking my first full-time position. But um, as I was seeking that position, just so we could pay bills and be married and make ends meet, I was working a full-time job in retail management. So I was a shipping manager for a major retailer. It's a name you'd recognize if I, if I said it today. And um, it would be the understatement of the century for me to tell you this morning that I hated that job with the fire of a thousand suns. I mean, I absolutely hated this job with all my heart. And, and I didn't hate this job because of the work that I was doing. I, I got up early in the morning, which I like to do. And so, man, I'd, I'd be at work. I could be 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning. I was moving around. You know, it was, it was uh, shipping and receiving. And so constantly doing something. The time went by really, really quickly. My problem wasn't the work that I was doing. My problem was the person that I was working for. Um, we had a general manager who, man, was just so disconnected from the reality, just all, it constantly kept us understaffed, would, would cut hours without paying attention to the actual needs uh, of the store, would constantly ask things of us that, that she was never willing to do our, ourselves. And, and, and she and I just, man, we, we kind of went at it a couple times. I'm trying to have my teams back and, and she didn't like what we were doing, but she wasn't actually present for what we were doing. And, and, and so, you know, I just had a lot of these moments where, man, I, I really wrestled with some sinful anger towards my general manager. And I actually came, I worked this job for, for just a little over a year. And I remember about, about six months in, I kind of landed in this place. I was like, you know what? If she's not gonna care for us and give us the treatment that we deserve, I'm not gonna give the effort that she thinks she deserves. And so I basically made a conscious decision, like, you know, I'm just gonna kind of show up and mail it in. And then one morning I remember reading Colossians chapter three, and this hit me across the head like a two by four. 
where Paul says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. And not for men, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance of your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. I had to come to the realization in that moment, I wasn't primarily working for a general manager. I was primarily working for Jesus. And as followers of Jesus Christ, this is who we should strive to be in the workplace. Listen, regardless of what it is that we're experiencing, we display the gospel by giving our best, even in the midst of bad circumstances. So two brief applications I wanna give us as we close this morning, because we're gonna pick right back up in this place next week. Paul says in verse 23 that this is how we carry out our work. We work in light of our obedience to the ultimate authority, and we work in light of our inheritance of the ultimate reward. Your ultimate authority is not your boss. It's not your employer. Your ultimate authority is Jesus. And your ultimate reward is not your paycheck. It's not your benefits. It's not your compensation. Your ultimate reward is Jesus. And it's from the contentment that we have in him, from the overflow of satisfaction in him, the fact that we have received him. Even if we don't get all the benefits and accolades of this world, we still have everything that we need in Christ. Listen, this is the good news of the gospel for us today. We have a Lord, we have a master in heaven who has never abused his authority. He does not use his authority to cause us harm. He used his authority to bring harm to himself that you and I might be saved. He laid down the rights. He laid down the privileges of being God. And he he took on the likeness of, of sinful flesh and he became our sins so that you and I could become righteous. That's what Jesus used his authority to do, not to hurt us, but to heal us. Which means when he's led us like that, you and I should gladly be able to bring ourselves under that lordship and authority. We should gladly say, I will submit to that. I'll submit to this Savior. So so friends, listen to this this morning. These should not be your primary questions. Our primary questions today should not be for husbands, how do I get my wife to submit to me? It should not be for wives, do I have to submit to my husband? It shouldn't be for kids, do I have to obey my parents? It shouldn't be for us, do I have to listen to my boss? Our primary question today should not be, are we submitting to each other primarily as much as, are we submitted to Jesus Christ? Because when you're submitted to Jesus Christ, your marriage will tick the way that it's supposed to tick. Kids, when you're submitted to Jesus Christ, kids, students, man, I know some of you are trying to follow Jesus and there are few things that are gonna hurt your relationship with Jesus more than disobedience to your parents. And for those of us in positions of authority or under positions of authority, we all display the gospel in our own unique ways. Brothers and sisters, when we're fully submitted to Jesus Christ and his plan and his purpose in the unique roles that he calls us to fulfill in our homes and in our work. When we do this the right way, the gospel is displayed. When we do this the wrong way, the gospel is distorted. So husbands, love your wives. And wives, submit to the love of your husbands. And children, obey your parents. And parents, encourage 
your children. If you're under authority, be obedient and sincere. If you're in positions of authority, be fair and just and submit yourself today to the authority of Jesus and then go display his submission and authority in your home and in your word. Brothers and sisters, these are the words of the Lord. And our response today should be, praise be to God. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the display of your son, Jesus Christ, who having all authority laid down those rights and privileges and submitted to your will that we might be saved. So as we come to the table this morning, Lord, to remember the death of your son, Jesus Christ, help us to look at his perfect submission that we might live out your plan of authority and submission to a watching world. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen.